0: Let's open with prayer and a little bit of liturgy, and then we'll get started. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we bless you tonight, and we want to say thank you for all that you are doing for us in our lives, in our communities, in our families. Lord, we bless you for sending your Son. We bless you for sending the Spirit into our hearts. We thank you that um, you chose to extend and uh demonstrate your mercy and your love towards us through the sending of your son and we know that without this extension Lord the gap could not be bridged we know that were it not for the covenant that was ratified by your son's blood there would be no hope in this world and there would be no uh, hope there would be no um, opportunity uh, to to meet with you and to um, to Uh, um, be reconciled to you. So, Lord, we are are in your debt. We're forever thankful and grateful for all that you're doing for us. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the book of Galatians and for inspiring and empowering Paul to write with a passion and to write for truth and to take a stand for the truth. We know that these words are relevant for us because you have promised that all that you've given to us is is relevant all that you've given to us is um applicable and so we seek like ezra did we study we seek in order to do in order to uh uh teach in order to um uh to teach others to do lord we we want to study in order to do in order to teach and so help us father to to press in give us a righteous desire give us the ability Give us the opportunity. Help us to govern our times and our schedules and our, our, our busy lives so that we will make time for you, so that we will uh, um, make it up, up our purpose, our 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 determination, Lord, um, to meet with you and to press into you and to worship you. Thank you, Lord, that this is our heart's desire because you have placed it on our heart. Be with each and every student tonight. I pray that you will um, bless them where they're at, meet them in their needs, uh, raise them up, strengthen them, uh, give them opportunities to share the good news with those around them. Uh, Help them to see with eyes of faith that it is only by clinging to Yeshua that they can make it in these last and dark evil days. Help us to be strong and be strengthened as we continue to meet with one another and to share with one another so that we can bless one another. And be with the teacher as well. He doesn't have all the answers. He needs lots of help. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise in all these things. Boshim Yeshua. Amen. I'm going to read a little bit of Hebrew and a little bit of Greek, like I'm fond of doing. Um, For my Hebrew selection, I want to read Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 21. This should be familiar to those of you who are... um, Familiar with Messianic uh or familiar with Jewish liturgy, Jewish Siddurs, this is part of the extended Shema. The shortened Shema is the Deuteronomy six, four through nine passage. This is the middle passage of the three, um, the three Shema passages, two out of Deuteronomy and one out of um Numbers. This is the middle passage, and I want to pick I'm singling this one out because of the uh covenant language where God talks about blessing Israel as they walk into his ways. And that's going to factor into our comment, our uh, study tonight. Um, I'll read from David Stern's version, his complete Jewish Bible, starting at verse 13, it reads, So if you listen carefully to my mitzvot, which I'm giving you today, to love Adonai your God and serve him with all your heart and all your being, then, says Adonai, I will give your land its rain at the right seasons, including the early fall rains and the late spring rains, so that you can gather in your wheat, new wine, and olive oil, and I will give your fields grass for your livestock, with the result that you will eat and be satisfied. But be careful not to let yourselves be seduced, so that you turn aside, serving other gods and worshipping them. If you do, the anger of Adonai will blaze up against you. You will shut up the sky so that there will be no rain. The ground will not yield its produce, and you will quickly uh, pass from the good land Adonai is giving you. Therefore, you are to store up these words of mine in your heart and in all your being. Tie them on your hand as a sign. Put them at the front of a headband around your forehead. Teach them carefully to your children, talking about them when you sit at home, when you're traveling on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates so that you and your children will live long on the land, Adonai swore to your ancestors that he would give them, as long as there is sky, above the earth. All right. The Hebrew reads, starting in verse thirteen: V'haya okay. im shemo tishmuu el mitzvotai asher anochi mitzve etchem hayom lahava et Adonai elochem ul abdo b'chol vavchem u'chol nafshukhem v'nata ti matar artzakim ba'ito yore umalkosh. The Safta, the Ganek of Jerushtaka, the Yitzhara. The Natati a Savata. He shamru lachen pen yifte lavav him, Samtem, the Elohim acherim, the lachem. lahem. af Adonai Bachem, the et Hashamanim, the Yematara Ha lo titen et yula va avad tem mehira me al asher adonai noten lachem. Vesam tem et devarai ele al lavavem, v'al al nafshechem, uk sharatem otam loot all yedechem. Vahayu, lototofot ben enechem. Veli madem otam et benechem the better Bam Bishitaka Bivetakov Lechtaka Vedereak of Shakpaka Ufkumeka Uk Tabtam al Mezuzot Betaka Uvish Araka Lemaan Yirbu Y Mechem Via Me Venekem Al Haadama Ashir Nishba adonai Adunai Laavotekem Late Lahem Ki Mehasamaim Al Haarets. Okay, and for my uh liturgy from the Greek let me turn to a passage out of the book of Romans I want to read Romans chapter 8 and I want to read the first eight verses and I think what I'll do is since I have since I have this in my um, since I have this in my um, lesson for tonight. I'm going to scroll into the screen, and you guys should be able to see it. It's right there on the middle of the screen. Uh, we'll read it from there, because it's out of the ESV. I'll read the English, and then I'll go back and read the Greek for you. Uh, Romans 8, 1 through 8 reads, quote, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done with the law, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, let's read the Greek of that same passage. This is out of the Textus Receptus. The Greek reads Uden ara nun catacrima, tois in Christo Yesu me kata Saraka sarca, perapaptusen, a la pnuma, ho garnamas tu pnumatas, tes zois in Christo jesu eluterosen, se apotu namu tes hamartias, kai tu sanatu, to. Gar adunatan tu namu en ho estene dia de sarkas hotel ton huetu huion pempsas en homoiomati. Sarkas hamartias kai peri hamartias katakrinan den hamartian en de sarki hina to de kaoma. Tu namu plerote in tois me kata sarka parapeptusin ala kata punuma. Hoi kar kata sarka antes ta des sarkas nusen. Hoi de kata ta tu punumatas. To gar fronema des sarkas danatas, To de fronema tu punumatas Zoe kai erene Diati to Fronema sarkas Ekra Iis Theon to Garnamo Tu Theu Upotasetai Ude dunatai Hoi De In Sarki Ontes Theo Aresi U Dunatai End quote. Alright, let us jump into, well done, thanks, Um, (laughs) let's jump into the study, let me scroll back up a bit, alright, if you're looking at the screen, you should see question 10, and that's where we're going to start tonight, I think we'll be able to hit all of question 10, and we'll even have room for a little bit of review, Um, let me read question 10 in its entirety, And then I'll go back and uh, explain what I mean by my question and by the answer. And then I will um, do kind of a review of what we've been talking about to kind of bring us up to speed uh, with what I felt has been some of the central um, concepts that I wanted to portray in these uh, 10 questions and answers. Let me read the question and the answer first, and then I'll go back and explain. Question. Question. Isn't the law written on our hearts now? Why try to keep it externally? Answer. Having the law written on our heart is indeed a New Testament feature. Read Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10. But wasn't having the law on the heart already an Old Testament feature from the beginning? Let's keep reading to find out. Speaking of the Torah, Moses taught in Deuteronomy 30 verse 14, The word is very near you. It is in your mouth, and it is in your heart so that you can do it. The psalmist stated, quote, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. End quote. That's Psalm 119, verse 11. Surely, Psalm nineteen seven through 13 as well as the entire chapter of Psalm 119, is speaking favorably of the Torah of Moshe, the law of God. Paul coined the phrases Law of the Spirit of Life and Law of Sin in Romans. He also coined the phrase law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9.21 and again in Galatians 6.2. In Yeshua, Paul calls the Torah holy, righteous, good, and spiritual. That's Romans 7.12 and 14. And Paul considered himself to be in agreement with and a servant of the law of God with his mind. That's Romans 7.22 and 25. Moreover, Paul also speaks of love being the fulfillment of the law in Romans 13.10, and James, or rather we should call him Jacob, speaks of the perfect law of liberty in Jacob 1.25 of his letter to the believers. With these data in mind, where then should the law of Moses fit within the New Testament theology for believers, for the believer in Messiah? Firstly, we must affirm that according to the Bible, only the circumcised heart can have the law of God written upon it. Also, recall that when the New Testament was being written, the only righteous law given of God that Israel knew of was the law of Moses. The very same law that Yeshua stated in Matthew 5 would not pass away down or even down to the smallest jot or tittle until all is fulfilled and you recall we studied that in answer 3 above. Therefore, the New Testament writers could not have been speaking of anything other than the law of God that would be written in our hearts as believers. The proof that the law written on our hearts is the very law of Moses is made evident when we go back and continue to read about this quote-unquote internal heart law from the pages of the Old Testament itself. So, Let's pull some quotes right out of the Tanakh, and let's talk about this law that's written on the heart. Deuteronomy six six quote and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart end quote. Deuteronomy ten sixteen quote circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff stiff necked end quote. Deuteronomy thirty verse six quote and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. End quote. Psalm forty, verse eight, quote, I delight to do your will, O oh, my God, your law is within my heart, end quote. Jeremiah thirty one, thirty three, quote, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Quote. Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20 And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my rules, and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. End quote. And lastly, Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-six through 27 quote, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. End quote. It is clear from these Old Testament verses that the law of the heart is the law of God, the law of Moshe. It's also clear that the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, writes this law on the heart of those who genuinely know and love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, a love only possible when one surrenders to the Messiah, Yeshua. With this in mind, we can now appreciate Paul's statement in Romans 8, which was hinted at in my answer to question four above, but is presented in its entirety here. And I already read this in the um, liturgy, but I'll just skim through it again real quick. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Romans 8, 1-8, as rendered from the ESV. In conclusion to this part of my question, we see then that the Torah is the universal document for both peoples and it outlines God's plan for all mankind, both Jews and Gentiles. God's eternal promises are intended for all those with circumcised hearts, and only the Spirit of God can write the Word of God on the heart of an individual. Thus, the Torah is not just for Jews only. A person does not need to take on legally recognized Jewish status in order to be grafted into the people group of Israel. This will become a central theme of Paul's letters, and it will particularly be helpful for us as we study the historical, social, and religious context of the book of Galatians. All right, let me scroll back up to the top of the question. And for the most part, when I read my answers, I hope they're self-explanatory, that they don't require a lot of explaining. But nevertheless, let me just go back and highlight some of the the, the reasons and and the concepts that I'm trying to convey in my answer. The question itself presumes uh, that many within Christian circles believe that now that they have accepted Jesus and now that the law is written on their heart, a concept that most all Christians, I believe, agree with. I find very few Christians who are going to argue over the reality of the law being written on the heart, especially when the book of Hebrews, quotes it, quotes the Jeremiah passage twice, once in Hebrews chapter 8 and once again in Hebrews chapter 10, quoting from the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah promises in the New Covenant that God will write His laws on our inward parts, that, that God will write His laws on our hearts. So, very, very little, very few uh, pastors and, and well-meaning Christians would argue the point, over the point, about the law being written on the heart. But, Um, When I presented these questions and answers to the original study group that they were written for uh, way back in 2013, um, before a live study group, and I took live questions from them, this was one of the questions that came up, one of the um, pushbacks to the messianic position that we should be following Torah, that we should be keeping Torah. Um, One of the common objections to keeping Torah, that is to... Uh, recognize that we should be walking in Seventh-day Sabbath, keeping kosher to the best of our ability, Um, uh, participating in the festivals that God outlines for us in Leviticus 23, Um, having a mezuzah on the door if we can, wearing tzitzit if we can, things like that. One of the pushbacks, one of the objections is, well, Ariel, if the law is written on my heart, I don't need to keep it externally because it's already internal. I don't need to externalize it. And so, um, I started in my question by affirming that the law on the heart that many Christians often recognize, they articulate it as if it, it's the law of Christ in contradistinction to the law of Moses. And so that's why my answer um, flows the way it does. I found that oftentimes many well-meaning Christians will opt for the "quote unquote" law of Christ in favor or in in opposite to "quote unquote" the law of Moses. So I'll have Christians say, "Well, I don't need to keep the law of Moses because I keep the law of Christ," or something to that effect. And so my answer goes to explain goes on to explain that historically, when Paul penned the words "law of Christ" in First Corinthians nine twenty on nine twenty one in Galatians two law of Christ um, he he quite likely was not trying to invent a new law or reference something that had not already been um, recognized by the Jewish community which was the law of God the law of Moses knowing the relationship that Christ has with the Father the the um, etymological I'm sorry the um, uh, oh, there's a fancy word I wanted to use, and it's escaping me. The um, ontological—that's the word I was looking for—the ontological relationship that God has with the, with His Son, meaning ontology is the relationship of the the origin of things the nature of things the makeup of things how is it that god and jesus can both be god how is it that jesus can be god and god be god at the same time that's what i mean by ontology ontological so we know that paul recognized that jesus was very god veiled in flesh therefore to say that the law of christ is something different than the law of god is to strain the relationship between god and his father makes sense so the law of God and the law of Christ, since they are both uh, yes, thank you Aaron ontological since they are both um, since they, they are both God's righteous law, it makes sense to uh, explain Paul's statement, Law of Christ, in light of the law of God that Christ upheld, or the law of Moses that Christ modeled, something to that effect, rather than make the law of Christ something to be something different than the law of of God or the law of Moses, as if to suggest that the law of God is deficient and that it required the replacement by the law of Christ. And unfortunately, that is a standard Christian position, at least one that I've encountered as I visit churches, as I dialogue with well-meaning Christians uh, on the internet, via email, things like that. In my 20 years of walking out Torah and teaching Torah uh, in churches and in Messianic congregations, Um, I, I find this quite often. The law of Christ and the law of God are two different things, and I don't find that to be a tenable position, given the weight of Scripture that we just read in our answer here. If you look at all those passages, the ones out of Deuteronomy, Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, clearly God envisions that His law, a.k.a. the law of Moshe, His law was designed to be on our heart. And the only way we know that it can be on our heart is if we surrender to His Son, to Yeshua. If we give our all to Him. If we fall on our face and cry out for His mercy and receive Him into our lives. And let the Spirit, the Ruach, wash over us and fill us and cause us to walk into His Word. This is the only way that the Word can be written on our hearts. Because the heart that is made of stone cannot receive the words of God is only the heart that is made of flesh, the heart that has been softened by the Spirit of God, the heart that has surrendered to the Messiah, Yeshua. This is the only heart that can receive the Word of God. This is the only heart that can be uh, obedient to the ways of God. So when God talks about these words shall be on your heart, He's not just talking about some lofty idea. He's not just saying that this really should be special to you. That the words that I'm telling you today, that you know, using Moshe's voice, the words I'm telling you today should be on your heart. Moshe's not just hoping that Israel will memorize these words or something to that effect. Moshe knows what God knows, and the reason Moshe knows is because God revealed it to him that the words can only be on your heart if you genuinely trust in God with all your heart, and today that means trusting in the Messiah. It meant that it meant the same thing back then, too, trusting the Messiah. We just didn't know his name was Yeshua, is my point. So, the point I'm trying to emphasize in this answer, without belaboring the point, is that the law of God and the law of Christ are the same thing. And that the only way for the law of God to be on the heart, or the law of the heart, the only way for the law to be on the heart is for the Spirit of God to write that law on the heart. And... Again, I know that most Christians would agree with my statement there that the only way for the law of God to be on your heart is for God's Spirit to write it on your heart and for you to surrender to Yeshua. But the disconnect, the, the, um, uh, the confusion between the conversations that most Messianics have with Christians and vice versa, the, the point of contention is, is right in the very question itself. Isn't the law written in our hearts? Why try to keep it externally? Um, I hope that makes sense to us now as we consider that when God gave us the Torah, He meant for us to keep it because it's for our own good. In fact, as I draw this part of the question to a close and then go back and do kind of a review of the other questions and get kind of an overview of where I want to go in the book of Galatians. in these last twenty minutes in the study, look at ezekiel eleven nineteen and twenty and ezekiel thirty six twenty six and twenty seven I want to focus on these for just a split second ezekiel eleven nineteen and twenty quote and I will give them one heart and a new spirit. This is Ezekiel speaking god's words. the prophet is speaking the words of God and so it's God's voice, but the prophet's writing it down and Notice that God promises these words to Israel as a group. This is God speaking to national Israel. Wayward Israel. Disobedient Israel. Stiff-necked Israel. So God recognizes that they are in a state of unrepentance. They are in a state of disobedience. They are in a state of darkened hearts. Stone-cold hearts. And so Ezekiel is prophesying that God will one day break that stubbornness that God will soften their hearts. And look what happens. I will give them one heart, a collective one there, and a new spirit, meaning a corporate heart. They'll, they'll be corporately one people. I'll give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now let me pause for a moment. What is Ezekiel describing? Nothing short of corporate salvation for national Israel. Does it mean that every single Jew will be saved in that day? Not hardly. What it means, however, is that using the words of Paul, all Israel will be saved, meaning all those within the visible people group of Israel in the day that Ezekiel's prophesying about, all those that are appointed towards to salvation, God will save. So, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't mean every single Jew, but it does mean, or every single Israelite, I should say, but it does mean that there will be a tipping point. The, um, the balance or the bulk or the, um, the central uh, part of the, the nation of Israel will claim faith in Yeshua. Um, the, uh, what's the word I want to say? The, um, at some point in time, Israel's um, uh, uh, heart will change because God's going to change it. And in this heart change and the spirit coming in, they're going to recognize their need for a Savior, and they're going to embrace Yeshua as a people group. Again, doesn't I don't believe it means every single Jew or every single Israelite, but it does mean that the majority of them. <clears throat> but look at the rest of the verse, the rest of the passage. After God removes the heart of stone from their flesh and gives them a heart of flesh, what happens? What's the result? What's the cause and effect going on in the va- in the passage? that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Look at the result of God putting his spirit within them, taking out the heart of stone and replacing it with the heart of flesh, which we know is lingo for, quote unquote, they will be saved because they're going to believe in Yeshua. Look at the result of their salvation. The result, Ezekiel says, is that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules. So, I find it very hard to believe that traditional Christianity can't read these verses and understand that Ezekiel is prophesying that the nation of Israel will one day accept Yeshua and in so doing will become genuinely Torah-obedient. Why can't the church see that? I believe they can't see that because it goes against the theology prevalent in so many places in the church. Not in every place, but in so many places. It goes against the theology of the church that teaches that in Christ, in Jesus, the law has been relaxed. It's been done away with. We no longer have to keep it anymore. It's no longer relevant for us. And yet Ezekiel speaks to the opposite. Ezekiel prophesies that one day, because of their faith in Yeshua, They will in fact become Torah obedient, Torah observant. Look at Ezekiel thirty six twenty six through twenty seven. It basically is a repeat of the eleven of the chapter eleven passage. Same concept. "Quote: A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you." And look at look at the next clause. Look at the next part. And cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. End quote. So again, this is why I am so adamant as a messianic Torah teacher, as a messianic Jew, that to come to faith in Yeshua causes a person to walk into the Torah. It causes a person to become Torah obedient, Torah observant, Torah, per, Torah pursuant, or at least Torah respectful. Far from Far from purporting what the standard Christian theology teaches today, that faith in Jesus nullifies the Torah, I'm sorry, the Torah the, the, the Bible itself doesn't teach that. It doesn't, it cannot teach that. Otherwise, we would have a Bible that is irrelevant to us. We would have Paul teaching that that we no longer have to keep the Torah, but yet where would Paul get the chutzpah? Where would Paul get the authority to say such a statement if that's what, we're, what Paul was saying. We know that's not what Paul is teaching. We know in fact that Paul knew his Old Testament. We know he knew his Tanakh. Therefore I'm sure Paul was familiar with these passages in Ezekiel. Surely Paul would agree that to place your faith in Yeshua, to allow God to circumcise your heart, to allow God to take the heart of stone away and to replace it with the heart of flesh, to allow God to fill you with his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit. To allow God to do those things on the inside surely results in the person becoming observant or obedient to the law of God. Paul knew it, and therefore Paul would teach that. Amen? So, that's essentially all I wanted to um, highlight. lost my voice there. That's essentially all I wanted to highlight in this part of the question. Now let me go ahead and um, let me go ahead and talk briefly about uh, where I want to go in the study in these last ten minutes or so of the um, the study itself. Before I move into the fifteen-minute Q and A session, there is a central hermeneutic key that I'm trying to convey as I introduce Galatians to many people. Um, what I've found is that traditional Christianity holds to a paradigm, a, a central view, a, uh, an opinion as it were, um, a conviction, about the book of Galatians and Paul's writings in particular. And they hold to a particular view of first century Israel and, and her relationship to Torah and in this view which i'm going to describe here in a moment in this view it conveniently causes many christians most of christianity to excuse the relevance of torah because of the misunderstanding. i call it misunderstanding from their perspective they don't they don't think they're misunderstanding but i think they're misunderstanding but it causes them to misunderstand paul's words and therefore to misapply um Torah relevance. And so let me just go ahead and describe that, and it will help to carry this perspective into your study of the book of Galatians because um, I have found that depending on which perspective you hold of these two, I'm going to describe two of them. Depending on which perspective you hold, you're either going to read Paul and walk away from it going, wow, the Torah is still relevant for us, and I can now understand or appreciate the um, the blindness that 1st century Israel had in uh, approaching Torah. Or, you're going to walk away from Paul's writings and go, wow, I think I understand now why Paul teaches that the law is done away with, and why we should never try to be obedient to the law. You're going to take one of these two positions. Now, most of you who are following my teachings, most of you who have been Um, Messianic, uh, for any number of years, any any length of time, already hold to a a position that believes that the Torah is not done away with. There are numerous verses that you cite to hold this position that the Torah is not done away with. However, um, it may help to articulate your view, or our views, when approaching the book of Galatians. So, let me just uh, uh, describe these two views for you. <clears throat> the first view is labeled merit theology and it describes a belief of or a view or an opinion, a hermeneutic as I describe it or a paradigm. It describes the viewpoint of the traditional historical church, the Christian church, for about the last 2000 years, and essentially this position which is labeled merit theology or we could label it Lutheran Paul or we could label it um, traditional Paul, something to that effect. Uh, This position believes that the Jewish people of the first century were very interested in keeping the law because they believed as an individual that if an individual kept the law perfectly or kept it to some degree, kept it devotedly, they believe that they would be saved. They believe that the Torah saved them. They believe that Torah keeping saved them. This is the viewpoint, more or less, of the Christian Church as they read through Paul's writings and as they encounter the Jews of the first century when they read through the Book of Acts and things like that, and read through the the Jewish people that Yeshua interacted with. Many people in the Christian Church will read through Paul's writings and believe that Paul is combating a Jewish belief of his day that. Individuals that individual torah keeping will save them, and therefore this is why Paul has to contradict that errant theology of his day. Paul has to explain to the Jewish people of his day that no one can keep the Torah for salvific perfect purposes. You can't keep the Torah to become saved <clears throat> so in so doing in in painting the picture of the first century that way, in describing what we call the pattern of religion in this manner, what that does is it implicates Torah observance among Messianics today as being done for the wrong reason. For instance, when your average Christian believes that Paul is is um, not in favor of keeping Torah because it's been done away within Christ, it's been relaxed in Messiah, and that any attempt to keep it for meritorious purposes, merit theology, any perp- any attempt at keeping it will always fail because no one can keep it, and it's not a self document. Therefore, Paul's going to tell, you, warn you from trying to keep it. He's going to warn the Gentile Christians from trying to keep Torah. He's going to warn them from trying to fall back under the law, things like that. He's going to warn them that that by the works of the law, no one is justified, no flesh is justified. It's not by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, things like that. In a word, when your average Christian applies that definition or that caricature or that That view of the first century to today's situation when when your average Christian watches your average Messianic walk into Torah, keep Torah, try to keep a semblance of Torah, then it causes your average Christian to misunderstand why your average Messianic is keeping Torah. Isn't that true? This is why there are so many heated arguments between Messianics and Christians, often over Torah obedience. Quite often, I'll find Christians who will scold me, or school me, or uh, rebuke me for trying to keep Torah because they think I'm trying to be saved in my Torah keeping. Or they think I'm trying to earn brownie points with God. Or they think that I'm falling back under legalism. Or they think that I'm going back under the law, or something to that effect. And they'll explain to me how that Paul teaches that the works of law can't save me, and that to become under the law is opposed to being under Christ— Uh, things like this. And so this is the first way of looking at um, Galatians. It is the more or less the traditional way of viewing Paul's writings for the last 2,000 years. However, I have found, and I'm not alone in this, there are very very many well-meaning, well-versed Torah teachers, um, pastors, Christians, Messianic Jews, you name it, Across the the, the 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 you know the gamut of of um, believers from your um, general generic um, in the pew believer to your you know to your theologian in the seminary to to the you know the one with the doctorate degrees and things like that you know from from the whole swing the whole pendulum swing there are people who are now coming to understand within the last say forty fifty years that we have really misunderstood Paul's first century. Jewish preoccupation with Torah, we have misunderstood the way the Judaisms of Paul's day interacted with the Torah and why. And in a word, what I'm describing by many people is called the New Paul perspective, although that term is a heated term today in, in theological circles because it describes a movement, it describes a, a, a change of theological emphasis on why the Jews kept the Torah in the first century. And I believe that the New Paul perspective is heading in the right direction, although it has some issues. um, It has some questions. It has some challenges. But it's going in the right direction. So let me kind of describe what I believe is a better way to interact with Paul. And here's that description. The better way to understand the first century Israel, the first century Jews, is not to describe them as thinking they can keep the Torah for salvation. In other words, merit theology, in other words, Lutheran Paul all over again. Instead, what we have found as we study through the historic writings that have survived from the destruction of the temple, and talking about the rabbinic writings that are available to us today in the form of the Mishnah and the Gemara, the Sifra, the responsa literature, the Midrashim, um, the Tosefta, uh, the other extra-biblical writings that have survived, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been unearthed, um, the writings of Josephus, the writings of... Um, uh, who else do we have in there? Anyway, you're kind of getting the idea. Essentially, what we've done is we've gone back through these documents and to the best of our ability and to the degree that they describe the patterns of religion in and throughout the Middle East, throughout Israel, during the first century. To the degree that that those documents describe what religious life was like in first century Israel, what we've discovered is this. The Jewish people, as an ethnicity, held to a prevailing view, a common belief, a shared belief, that all Israel was comprised of Jewish people only. In a word, all Israel was Jewish Israel. And because they were elected by God at Mount Sinai as a corporate people group, they were already corporately saved. They didn't need to earn their salvation in any way, shape, or fashion. That's the first hermeneutic key to understanding Paul's Judaism. Now, stop and and remind yourself for a moment. That's not true either. Just because one was a Jew didn't mean they were automatically saved. Just because one was ethnically Jewish in Paul's day didn't automatically, corporately guarantee him a place in the world to come or guarantee him a place in God, at God's table. We know that's, that's true, that even if they believed that, even if they believed that being Jewish saved them, that's, that theology is still errant from Paul's perspective. But that helps us to understand their preoccupation with Torah. Because if it's true that they felt that their covenant position was gained by ethnic status, then those same documents also explain to us that their preoccupation with Torah was not in an effort to gain salvation, it was in an effort to maintain covenant membership. Do you see the difference? The difference is that the implications that it has for today's messianic communities is that, like Paul's first century Judaism's, on the one hand, we don't keep Torah to become saved. We keep Torah because we're saved. That's what we explain to our Christian friends and family members who see us walking in Torah. But it also helps us to understand that even in the mistaken view of the first century, where they thought that if they kept Torah, it would maintain their position in the covenant. We know that that's not theologically possible either, right? In other words, if you think of first century Israel as a closed, exclusive group, a members-only club, that all the members who belonged to the club were Jewish-only, both males and females, then Two questions could be asked if you lived in the first century and you were a Gentile. First question is, how does one get into the group? That's the first question. And the second question is, how does one stay in the group? Those are the two questions that Paul addresses in his letters. How does one get into the group? Well, the answer from from the first century Jewish perspective, the unbelieving Jewish perspective, the answer to the first question, how does one get into the group, is, Either A, you're born Jewish, married into Jewishness, or you convert to Jewishness. That's the answer to the first question. How do you get into the group? Answer, you become a Jew. Through the ceremony of the proselyte, through the proselyte conversion process, you go into the process as a Gentile, you come out of the process as a as a legally standing Jew, a legally recognized Jew, and in so doing, you become a member of, of the group that's the first part the first step the first the answer to the first question from the first century unbelieving Jewish perspective right remember there's a second question what's the second question how does one stay in the group ah I'm glad you asked the Jew would say to the Gentile here's how you stay in the group once you get into the group by becoming a Jew you stay in the group by keeping the Torah by keeping the commandments by becoming by remaining a good, upstanding Jewish member of the group. Because if you thumb your nose at the commandments, this is the unbelieving Jew talking to the unbelieving Gentile in the first century, answering the second question. If you thumb your nose at the covenant, if you say that the Torah is not relevant for you, if you disobey Torah repeatedly, if you remorselessly, Um, turn away from God, then God will kick you out himself. God will exercise his right to put you out of the group because that's what God says in his Torah. God says, I will cut you off repeatedly using the Hebrew word karat. I will cut you off if you repeatedly violate my precepts, my commandments. I'll kick you out of the land and I'll kick you out of the group. So those two questions, how does one get in the group and how does one stay in the group? From a first century unbelieving Jewish perspective, the answers were like this. One gets in the group by being a Jew, one stays in the group by keeping the Torah. Now, I can promise you that if you describe Paul's first century counterparts the way I just described it to you now, I can promise you most Christians will scratch their heads and say, Huh? What are you talking about? The Jewish people didn't think they were already saved by being Jewish. The Jewish people didn't think that by keeping Torah they would stay saved. No, the Jewish people were unsaved and they thought if they kept Torah they would become saved. That's all. That's what your average Christian is going to explain to you. So, that's why there's a big disagreement in my opinion over how to read Paul. How to understand Paul. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Ariel, but I've read verse after verse where Paul talks about the works of the law, the works of the law. Isn't he talking about Torah obedience? Isn't he talking about keeping the law? Yes and no. Yes and no. The word works of the law, the phrase ergonomu, the phrase works of law, the Greek is ergonomu, this phrase is not to be taken in its normative literal understanding. It doesn't mean works done in obedience to Torah. Works of the law in Paul doesn't simply mean Torah obedience. Instead, it's a technical phrase, and the reason we know it's a technical phrase is because the Dead Sea Scrolls, particularly 4QMMT, uses this phrase in the Hebrew. The Greek ergon namu, if we were to translate it back over into Hebrew, would be something like Maasei HaTorah. And this phrase, Maasei HaTorah, works of the law, shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It shows up in the Qumran documents at 4QMMT. And what we find that it means there is not necessarily wooden obedience to torah it doesn't mean an unbeliever keeping the torah for the sake of salvation or for the ostensible sake of salvation rather works of the law is this it's it describes a document a policy a bylaw church bylaw if you were a group bylaw a group policy the phrase works of the law is a description of a group policy that is imposed upon the group for the sake of keeping the members I'm sorry for the sake of initiating members into the group and for the purpose of keeping the members in the group so works of the law becomes a kind of a halakha it becomes a kind of a, a policy a tradition it is a set of laws that have been lifted out of the torah and and put back on paper in in, in a smaller form. In other words, not the entire 613 laws, as it were, but rather maybe like three to five, what we might call highly visible um, community commandments, such as Sabbath-keeping, kosher-keeping, and other holiness issues. Uh, Particularly Sabbath-keeping, kosher-keeping, and say, maybe some of the festivals, or something like that. Something that is visibly recognizable from those on the outside and those on the inside. We call we, What I'm describing is what the Jewish people would call badges. You know, If you're talking about a uniform, a badge is something that's worn on the outside for everyone to see. You don't put a badge on the inside of the uniform, you put it on the outside for everyone to see. And the Sabbath and the dietary issues and circumcision, those three, those are external badges. They are marks of Torah obedience that anyone, whether in the group or outside of the group, can recognize and observe. So those three, uh, Sabbath, kosher, circumcision, those three got lifted out of the 613, reproduced and put back down into into a policy packaged, as it were, repackaged into a short list. And this smaller repackaged policy became known as the works of the law. And that's the that's the policy that Paul is challenging in his first century letters to Galatians and Romans. Paul is essentially saying you can't be a group member by keeping these three. You can't be a group member by adhering to the works of the law. And Paul doesn't mean you can't be a group member, i.e. be saved. He doesn't mean you can't be a group member by keeping all of Torah. What he means is, you can't get into the group by keeping these three. You can't get into the genuine and lasting group by keeping these three. So, in in summary, the best way to understand Paul is to understand that many of his phrases where he uses the word law, the Greek word is namos, the technical phrases that he uses must be understood within their sociological background. And the sociological background of the first century cannot possibly or likely be described the way standard Christianity caricatures them today or characterizes them today with their emphasis on merit theology. Um, that really is kind of a, the, the viewpoint, the merit theology view, the, the Lutheran view, which is the old Paul, the Lutheran view of Paul, the, the one that I don't hold to, the one that most of Christianity holds too, but the one that I don't believe is very accurate. That particular view of Paul um, holds a pejorative view of the law. That particular view of Paul looks unfavorably towards Torah observance and Torah obedience because it believes that any any, um, attempt at keeping Torah is only done for the purpose of merit before God or salvation before God. It doesn't recognize or understand that that a person can keep the Torah because they're saved. And again, even once we switch to the new perspective on Paul or the um, more accurate view of Paul, um, even even when we switch our paradigm and, and begin to accept this, which I hope all of you who are listening to this commentary will begin to seriously consider that this is a better way of viewing Paul, even when you switch over to that view, you still have to recognize that it is true theologically that you can't keep the Torah to become saved. So Paul would always disagree with any meritorious keeping of Torah. However, the point I'm trying to make is that Paul doesn't have to articulate that in his letters because it's not a view that was commonly held by the first century Jews of his day. Paul doesn't have to tell them to stop keeping Torah to become saved because that's that's not the error that they were living with. That's not the deficiency of their view of Torah. The deficiency that they had was when it came to um, their ethnic status. They, they, the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day, were mistakenly um, equating ethnic status with salvation. That's where Paul's going to spend most of his time um, trying to convince them that it's faith in Yeshua that gets you into the covenant, not faith in your ethnic status that gets you in. Does that make sense? sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but I'm not. And I hope that those of you who are following my commentary will begin to see this as I flesh it out in my study to um, the book of Galatians here. It really becomes a wonderful way of reading through Paul, especially when you get to the passages where Paul carefully begins to explain how Jews and Gentiles are equal in Messiah, how Jews and Gentiles are both equal, equal covenant members. And because we are both equal covenant members, we both have equal access to the Torah. See how that works? In the standard Christian view, they do believe that Jews and Gentiles are equal in Messiah, but our equality in Messiah makes us both equally um, unable or uh, unnecessary to keep the Torah. In other words... Because we're both believers, many times Christians will articulate it this way. They'll say, you know, true believers don't have to keep the Torah because we, we, we've, we've been saved by Jesus. We we don't need to keep follow the Torah anymore because a true believer has the law written on his heart and a true believer has the Spirit of God and therefore keeps the law of Christ. We don't have to fall under the letter, we fall under the Spirit. We don't live our life by the letter of law. We live our life by the Spirit. And so I'm not trying to mock those views. I think they are convictions that should be held. However, I'm trying to challenge them in a way so as to bring us up to speed with a more accurate view of of interacting with Paul, his letters, and Paul's uh, audiences, the people that he wrote to. And that was that's that's really the aim and the goal of many of my teachings. So... In closing, let me just say that this is going to be a wild ride. I hope that all of you can stick it out. This is week six of the Exegeting Galatians commentary. My name is Aryel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatunava, the Harvest in Thornton, Colorado, but I live in South Korea. And these commentaries are being brought to you live from South Korea. It's my updated version of the commentary, Exegeting Galatians. Currently, it's about 122 pages and it's available in its entirety on my website. Well, it's available in two places. It's available at www.tetzetorah.com. Right on the homepage, click on the link at the very top that says Exegeting Galatians, and you're welcome to read through the study on the internet, or you can print out the PDF document. You can also visit my congregational website at www.craftedin.com. From the very top, click on the podcasts menu and let it drop down and show you the the podcast called um more lessons once the more lessons page loads scroll down through the page of of commentaries and you'll see the exegeting galatians commentary there i'm recording these audio sessions and uploading them to itunes as podcasts so i encourage you to visit itunes and to subscribe to my exegeting galatians commentary be warned, however, there is an earlier version that I recorded probably seven, eight years ago, and that was before I had completely finished the commentary, and now I'm recording these new versions. So these are the updated versions. Let me close in prayer, and then I'll open the floor up for those who are in the live chat room uh, if you want to have uh, questions and comments. I don't record the uh, live chat. That's a special exclusive feature only for those who attend the live session, join us every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time for Exegeting Galatians, a live Internet study. Okay, let's pray. Abba, we bless your name, and we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to come and to gather together through the medium of the Internet. Lord, even though we're disconnected, uh, separated by thousands of miles in different countries, Your Spirit is what draws us together, Lord. It is our desire to come and to worship You and to seek Your face and to know Your ways and to walk in them. That is what draws us together as a community. Thank You, Father, for each and every student who came out tonight during the live study. I thank You for those who are going to be listening to this audio by way of the MP3 or by way of iTunes uh, after the fact lord give them the opportunity to attend a live session if possible i pray that you'll bless each and every student raise them up in the fear and admonition of the lord help them to realize that that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and that they too that they too can be righteous in your sight only if they place their faith and trust in yeshua lord we know that during these last and evil days that if we do not continue to to grow our relationship with you, to press into you, to to study, to learn, to share what we are learning. Lord, to confess our sins, to turn away from sins, to be filled with the Spirit like you say. If we fail to do those things, Lord, we're going to fall by the wayside. And so we seek to be righteous in your sight by this very method of pressing into you, Lord. We seek to be pleasing to you. Not of a righteousness of our own, not because we are obedient, not because we um, have become right in our own sight, but rather because we have surrendered to Messiah and he has conferred his righteousness to us. Oh, thank you, Baruch Hashem, that Yeshua has conferred his righteousness to us. Lift us up, Father, and continue to challenge us. Help us to draw close to you in word and in deed. Thank you for each and every blessing that you have bestowed upon us. We'll be careful to give you the thanks and all these things. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or New Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O oh Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him,